This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 165, and today I sat down with Julie Nguyen, the founder and CEO of Methodology. Methodology is a high-end, sustainable gourmet meal prep service for busy professionals, parents, and foodies. Known for having the most sustainable and Instagrammable food packaging, including reusable glass jars and bento bowls, the Methodology Nutrition Program is designed to optimize gut health and weight management through fully cooked, calorie-controlled meals that utilize over 200 diverse plant ingredients per week. In this episode, Julie shares her story from growing up in Southern California as the first person from her high school to attend Stanford University, to dropping out of law school, to working at J.P. Morgan, where she learned how to be an A player, to working at Lumosity, where she became passionate about her health and quit her job to launch Methodology. We talk about her dream to be the first cloud kitchen to earn a Michelin star, why she's chosen to focus on product and quality over scale to create a fine dining experience, lessons she's learned the hard way, and why it's essential to plan and be prepared for potential downturns. If you'd like to try methodology for yourself, you can use the promo code stairway to CEO by visiting their website, gomethodology.com to get 10% off your first order. And if you like what you're hearing on the stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe and leave us an awesome review. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited to hear your story in building methodology. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. And you're in Paris now. I can't wait to hear how you got all the way over and why you chose to live in Paris. I love Paris. That's amazing. I wish I lived there. I'm kind of jealous right now, but I'm excited to hear your career journey and and everything into how you built your business. Let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from originally? I am from Southern California. I grew up in Little Saigon in Orange County, which is the largest population of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. Really? Yeah, it is. Raised by a single mom. So if you go there, there will be Vietnamese everything. And you as a Vietnamese person can learn zero English and live like a completely full life. And that's where I grew up. Even though my mom speaks English, that's just that's where I grew up and come from very humble beginnings like public high school was the first person from my high school to ever get accepted into Stanford it's like very unusual wow I feel grateful and even shocked that I am where I am today because it just feels like you would have never guessed if you had seen my upbringing that this would have happened so you're a trailblazer clearly (laughs) but tell me about your childhood what makes you the way you are when you look back what about your siblings do you have siblings like what kind of kid were you 
I have been entrepreneurial since I was a kid. I was the kid who ran around the neighborhood, picking flowers from my neighbors, assembling them into bouquets and selling back to them the bouquets. And they would often recognize their own flowers in the bouquets. They would buy them because it was a little kid. So I was always starting businesses and finding ways to make money. Like I even grew my own Vietnamese vegetables and would sell them to the Vietnamese grocery market every week. So that's just been me since I was a kid. And I've always dreamed since I was a kid of starting my own thing. I never was the kid who dreamt about having kids or getting married. And that's probably why I've done neither of those things at age 40. You know what's funny? Me neither. And my dad was a wedding photographer. Like when I was a child, I would watch weddings on the big screen in my house because he would put together these like really beautiful videos for the bride and groom. And it was like this, all the wedding music is like ingrained in my brain. I know every song, but I never, ever (laughs) fantasized of my own wedding, probably because I saw so many. (laughs) But anyways, but also I'm a very career driven person. It sounds like as you are too. So where does this come from? What did your parents do when you were growing up? My parents are both engineers. My dad was an electrical engineer. My mom was software and My dad has always been like very laid back and easy. He has always just said, do whatever career you want, as long as you make enough money that you don't have to like live a hard life. My mom wanted me to be a lawyer or something like that. And even to this day, tries to talk me out of the work that I do because she thinks it's too stressful. And why don't I just go work for a big company and do a nine to five, make more money and have less stress. So she still is not supportive. But one of the best lessons I learned early in life was I dropped out of law school actually after one year. And the lesson I learned from that was that was the point when I decided to let go of the need for my parents to approve of and be proud of my profession. Um, And I decided like, no, I'm actually going to law school for my parents, not for me. And I don't care about their approval anymore. And I'm going to do what I want. And once I let go of that, that was the moment when my career became just for me and not about them or what anyone else thought for that matter. Because I also had to kind of let go of the shame and the idea of having to tell all my friend group you know, from Stanford, hey, I dropped out of law school. That's like very unusual to tell a peer group that like no one drops out of grad school that I know of. So I had to just really like let go of what people thought about my career path, my parents and my friends, and just do what I want. And that like really freed me to make a lot of unusual career choices throughout my life that like led me to the industry that I'm in right now, even. Absolutely. As soon as you start to follow the path that's true to you and no one else, everything in your life changes from there on out. And it's funny, I have a very similar story where my mom really, really wanted me to go to college because she never went. And I found myself three years in undergrad going to the University of Delaware and being like, I hate this. I don't even want to be here. I had my dream set on starting a modeling career, which she was not supportive of like at all. She's like, that's not even a real job. If this one agency doesn't want you, no one will. And it's like, you know, she just was scared of me being in New York or traveling or anything. And for good reasons, of course, growing up in this small town and all those things. But once I decided to drop out and I decided I was only there and I realized I was only really there for my parents, then everything else shifted. And and it's just like you just don't stop doing things for yourself after you make that first big move. I think that's exactly right. Once you do it and you realize, hey, I survived and I'm happier and thriving. Yeah. Oh, what was I so scared of all this time? It just becomes progressively less scary to... Veer off the beaten path. Exactly. 
So that is really, I love that you took your life into your own hands. I think it takes a long time sometimes for people to learn to do that. And I think it's really awesome when you can do it that early. So what happened? What did your mom say? I know what my mom said when I told her I was dropping out of college. But what did she say when you're like, I'm leaving law school and I'm going to go do X? Did you even have a plan of what you're going to go do? No, I had no idea what I was going to do next. And I actually moved back in with her during that time because oh, she loved I didn't it. know how. Yeah. So she actually, in a way, she loved having me at home. Like she loved that. And that was fun. It was like a great time for us to bond because that was my first time living with her as an adult, really. It's a different kind of relationship. And, and, the, and that was like a wonderful few months when I was doing informational interviews, getting career advice from friends, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. So she had like a love-hate relationship with that time period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she was very worried for sure. <laughs> like, great. What now? You're like, I don't have any reason why I'm going to drop out, but I just don't like it. So I'm going to leave now. Yeah, exactly. And so then what did you end up doing? You were living with your mom for a little bit. And then what happened? And then thankfully, one of my best friends from Stanford is in like financial and career coaching. He's really famous now, Ramit Sethi. He stars in his own Netflix show, but he was one of my best friends then. And he coached me through figuring out what my dream job is. And he, you know, he has a product now called Dream Job and helped me go through interview processes and networking and negotiating offers and all that. So I ended up taking a job thanks to his coaching at JP Morgan in a really fun sales role that I loved when I got to travel around the country, live on an expense account, like learn how Wall Street works, work with really smart people who were really strict and hard on me and really leveled me up on this is what an A player works, how an A player sends an email, how an A player prepares for a meeting, runs a meeting, plans out their time. What are some of those things you can share? What, what, what do you mean by an A player? How does an A player conduct a meeting or write an email? What's the differences there? Like, I don't just show up for a meeting. I prepare for every meeting. So I look at like, what are the topics going to be? If it's one that I'm my guest in, I do any pre-reading that I need. I come up with any questions that I have in advance and I'm just ready. I get there five minutes early, never late. I'm like dressed appropriately. I've had enough sleep. Like I take my work seriously. And the same thing if I'm running a meeting in advance, here's the agenda, here's everything that you need to read. When I'm running a meeting, I make sure I hear from everyone. It's not just going to be the alpha males who are most aggressive and interrupt everyone. I will call on the quiet, shy person in the room. Like So I just learned how to do all of these things. And I didn't realize that what I was learning at the time in JP Morgan was this is how A players work. It wasn't until I went and worked in tech after that with people who were right out of college and like jumped straight into a tech startup. When I saw people who didn't work this way, that's when I realized that like, oh, this isn't just how everyone sends a work email. This isn't just how everyone prepares for a meeting. And it made me really grateful. So I was, you know, at the time that I was at JP Morgan, I loved it there and I'm grateful, but I became more grateful for the experience once I saw other kids out of college going straight into startups who didn't have that kind of boot camp that I had and just the way that they worked and like no one was really hands-on with them because at JP Morgan, they sent me into like a three-month boot camp where I did nothing but train on how to use Excel, how to do a business lunch, like business lunch etiquette, how to send an email, three months just learning how to do my job properly. Business lunch etiquette. That is yes. one that, what does that mean? Meaning like they teach you things like 
which thank God, because as a 21 year old, you don't know these things. I would have thought going into a lunch, great. This is a chance for me to eat a delicious lunch on an expensive count. This is going to be so fun. This is great. But they teach you things like, no, you are there. Like, what is the goal of the meeting? You're trying to like build a relationship, learn about like, what are their goals, earn their trust. So the food is the last thing you should care about. Like if you need to eat before you go to this meeting so that you're not hungry and you're not distracted, then you need to do that. But this is a business lunch and like your goals are to get to know the client, learn their needs, build their trust, pay attention to them. You pay attention to them. You don't pay attention to the food. Like that's not what, it, you know, they teach you things <laughs> like that where that would not have been obvious to me as a 21 year old. I would have been like, yes, free sashimi. So I'm like really grateful that I just learned all of these things from them. Yeah. It's funny because I've had so many entrepreneurs, CEOs on the show that have worked in banking, in investment banking, and they always talk about the culture. And I don't know what it's like. I mean, I've done a few banking jobs, but nothing in investment banking or in any long-term capacity. And so when people say like, oh, I, you know, sharpened my teeth at JP Morgan or blah, 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 blank, you know, a lot of people don't know what that means. So I appreciate you breaking it down for how they really kind of prepare and train people. It's really fascinating. Exactly. It's incredible. And they're really hard on you, which is great. It just gives you this, you really realize what the standards are because they don't care about your feelings. They care about the results, right? So I just remember first month in the job, my boss's boss, I sent out an email to the team. I picked it up. It was her. And she literally cussed me out. I picked up the phone and she's like, what the F is this email that you just sent? You know, she's like, how dare you send this email? And then she like, explained all the reasons why the email was wrong. So I'll tell you, just so the example makes sense. I was responsible for taking notes on a meeting. I sent the meeting notes out afterwards, thinking, oh, they're just notes for a meeting, whatever. Who's even going to read them? Or maybe people read them. It doesn't matter. Right. There were a couple bullet points where I didn't quite hear the person carefully. And so I was vague about what they said. So she calls it out. She's like, what is this? What did the person say there? And I was like, I don't know. I didn't catch it all. So you didn't think to ask them follow up and say like, when you said this, like, what did you mean so that you could like send out accurate notes? And I was like, no. So that's when I learned what the standard is. Like, don't send out notes for a meeting about things that you don't even understand or you didn't even hear carefully. Right. So then I knew, okay, the way you take notes at like an A player level is if there's anything you didn't catch or you understand, you follow up with the person, figure out what were they trying to communicate exactly, make the notes perfect and then send them out. And that's just like another example where like the standards are so high and they will like really take the time to ream you out. And it's not about your feelings. So I cried a lot the first three months on the job. Like I cried, I would call my dad almost every day. Like I got yelled at again, dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like, I mean, that's what college I wish was. You know, yes. if college was that, I wouldn't have dropped out. But when you're trying to teach calculus, which is completely useless, you're not going to keep my attention. I completely agree. I hated college. Like I went to Stanford and I hated it. I'm not, I don't like school. You know, I always felt like I was learning useless things. Yeah. But yeah, JP Morgan, I did not mind getting yelled at because I just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm like, I feel like I'm getting better at something useful. So even though it made me cry, like I was grateful for it. Yeah. I feel like that's similar with me when I was like fundraising for my first startup, you know, and <laughs> all the cuts, scrapes and bruises that you get along the way, you just, you learn. But it makes you so much better. And like you said, an A player. So I love that. So at JP Morgan, I think it's safe to say that's probably where you learned how to be an A player. Yes, 100%. And it also, it's not just the skills. You also need to have like the confidence of an A player. Meaning like after that in my career, when I went on to tech and to start my own company, there was never such thing as a role that I thought I wasn't ready for. Does that make sense? Because once you 
perform well amongst the top. You just build this level of confidence, whether it's logical or not, where you kind of look around at problems at the business. I remember the tech company, you know, if something was broken, like that team sucks, like let me lead it. Like I would not have had that kind of confidence. I think if I had started my career somewhere else, I just built so many skills and so much confidence that I just became unafraid of taking on things that I technically didn't know how to do yet. Right. That's awesome. And so you went into tech. What did you do after JP Morgan? Why did you leave such a cool place? I know it was probably a little brutal, but you've learned your lessons. You know, why not stick it out and stay longer? Well, I knew I always wanted to start my own business. And so I thought that a great stepping stone next would be to join an early stage business for a couple of years and see what it looks like to grow a startup from the ground up. Like, how do they become profitable? How do they raise money? How do they acquire customers? That's really smart to do that. I was advised to do that and I didn't. So like, this is really good advice, people. If you want to start a company to go work at an early stage startup, I was given that same advice and I was like, yeah, I don't have patience for that. I want to just dive into the deep end. No, I think that's good because like, I think that for me, I probably could have just dove in instead and I would have just learned more quickly because in my experience, probably some of yours, I learned more painfully but I would have learned more rapidly. But I did join an early stage tech startup called Mumosity. And during the time I was there, we went from 2 million revenue a year to 50 million revenue a year. So I just saw that like hyper growth and learned so much, learned how to build and manage a tech team and how to acquire customers in a profitable way. And it was great. So when I started Methodology, I knew what the puzzle pieces were and what success, at least in one area might, might look like, like how those teams might be structured. So I knew it wasn't like I knew nothing, but, but still starting methodology was the most painful, hardest thing I have ever done in my life. Despite Wall Street, despite working at a successful tech company, like I still felt completely unprepared for what came my way in years one and two of starting methodology. It was, I, I felt way over my head the entire time. Maybe you still do a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised if so. I feel like <laughs> that's, that's just the entrepreneurial life. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah, that's true. And so what made you come up with the idea? What was that aha moment? Where were you? What were you doing? And and how did you come up with the idea for methodology? I had been working in tech at the time. And you know, I was working with a naturopath because I had a ton of health issues. And then I learned that I can't eat gluten, dairy, processed foods, because when I do, I have like acne, eczema, asthma, panic attacks, all these like autoimmune health issues. And so I had to eat like a very special diet. And I was just exhausted because I was working crazy hours in tech, being groomed to potentially become CEO of this tech company. And then on Sundays, I would have to meal prep my own food all week, which was exhausting. It's six hours end to end for shopping, cooking, cleaning, putting the food into Tupperware. And also, I'm not a good cook. Like, I'm not good with my hands. So I was miserable eating this food all week, but I had to because I didn't want to go back to being sick again. And then I tried all the meal prep services, literally shipping food from as far as New York because my thinking was money is no object. This is an investment in my health. I just want something that tastes good, that's high quality, and that doesn't have processed ingredients, gluten, dairy. And I could not find a single thing that worked. So I ended up asking my friend Stefan, I was like, hey, let's hire a personal chef to cook the food that I want to eat. And then let's manage it for a bunch of our friends and see if other people want to share this chef. And so I emailed something like 20 friends and around a dozen were like, yeah, I'll let you manage my food. Because at that point, everyone knew I was a fanatic about nutrition. And they had seen me turn my own health around with nutrition. And so we were managing this private chef and 
people kept asking to get added and people weren't canceling. They were just loving being taken care of with the high quality food that they trusted and that tasted good. And Stefan and I were just loving the process so much that we just decided to like, let's just do this. Let's like do it full time. And so I quit my job in tech and went full time into doing methodology. I mean, it kind of started like that. And there was never any like market research. Like I had no idea what like a PL and like food would look like. Like it happened very organically. And I think that if I had done market research and seen actual food delivery PLs, I would have probably never started this business because I would have realized there's very little room for error. But yeah, so that's how it started. It was it was literally just to solve my own pain point because I felt like no one was doing it and it was fun and it mattered to me. That's awesome. And the food is really good too. I mean, so I've got the vegan one, gluten-free and it's delicious. The spices and it's so easy and it comes in these really cool looking containers that you can use as Tupperware. So now I feel like I have a whole new set of Tupperware at the house (laughs) because I saved all the containers that you put the food in. It's really easy and the flavors are amazing. I kind of have been using it almost as like, not as like the full dish because I've got a kid and I've got my mother-in-law here and my husband. And so I like try to share it. And so it becomes a side for all of us. (laughs) It's really not the intention of your business, but it's become everybody wanted some. So we've had to share, but it's really good. The flavors are amazing. You can tell the chef is great. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Like flavor has always been the thing that we care about most, I think it's because my, my co-founder is like a total foodie. I asked him to co-found the business with me because he has the most food knowledge of anyone I know. He had worked in fine dining kitchens around the world for seven years prior to founding Methodology. And he and I designed menus together along with our chefs. And for us, it's always flavor first. Like we hate diet food. None of us want to eat it. And and that's the reason why people don't stick with motel food eating is because it just doesn't taste good. Obviously, it tasted good. People wouldn't drop out. So we spend a lot of our investment in culinary innovation on like, how do we make this vegan meal have the same umami level of satisfaction as a meal with meat or seafood, right? Or how do we make sure vegan meals have enough proteins that they're very satiating for hours afterwards and you're not hungry two hours after you eat the meal? We spend a lot of time on all these things. And the portions are pretty significant. You know, it's a full meal for one person. You guys did not cheap out at all on portion sizes, but it's really a lot of food. Exactly, which a lot of our competitors do. And we don't. We want you eating tons of veggies and fiber. And the reason why the portions end up being big is we have very strict targets for the number of plants per week our customers need to eat and the total amount of fiber that they need to get in a meal. And we can't skip on vegetables and hit that target. And that's why the product costs what it is. It's like a luxury product because you're getting, like if you were to create a methodology meal at a restaurant, you would have to order two to three vegetable sides and like a protein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that would be like a 40 to $60 meal depending on the restaurant. But as you see, that's like, that's basically what's in every meal. Yeah. And I love the vegan protein balls that you have. Those are like, I mean, they're already gone. They're gone. They they <laughs> lasted like a day. My mother-in-law has a very big sweet tooth and she can't really have sugar anymore. She's recently diagnosed with colon cancer. And so she's like on a clean diet right now at the house. And she just loves them because she's like, is there sugar in these? And I was like, no, there isn't. You can have them. It, they're just dates. And she's like, really? You know, she can't even believe there's no sugar in there. I don't think she knew what a date was. <laughs> I love hearing that. Yeah. The protein bar space is one where 
I'm going to sound snobby when I say that, but there is no protein bar on the market in America that I would eat without feeling somewhat dissatisfied, either with the flavor or the quality of the ingredients. And so we spent a lot, I mean, we spent months recipe testing each of those protein truffles because the goal is we would need to hit the macronutrient targets, but it can't have that like cardboardy taste that a lot of vegan protein bars have. Like it can't have that flavor at all. You just feel like you're eating something decadent, not like you're eating quote unquote, a protein bar that tastes a little bit cardboardy, but you know, it's good for you. I don't want people to feel like they're making compromises when they eat our food. Yeah, you're definitely not. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was at all. If anything, it's way better than anything I can cook. So I'm like the worst. (laughs) That's the way I feel about it too. It's definitely better than anything I can cook. I'm a horrible home chef. Same. Same. So this has been super helpful to have food at the house for once. I'm like, oh my God, I don't have to actually cook from scratch right now. It's been awesome. Thanks so much for sending some of that over. And I know for those that are listening that want to give it a try themselves, we have an awesome promo code for them. Stairway to CEO is the promo code. And what do we get, Julie? What's the promo code mean? You will get 10% off your first week if you use that promo code. All right. There we go. So they all they have to do is just go to your website, gomethodology.com, right? And then they can at checkout use the promo code Stairway to CEO. Exactly. Perfect. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So now that you've got this amazing product and you've got you've been in business for what over eight years, it looks like. Yes. Have you fundraised? How's that been? What's the journey? Because you're obviously in Paris now. Lots of years have gone by since starting the business on the West Coast. Tell us how the journey's been going. It has been an amazing journey. In the early years, we thought we were going to go the venture path, but then we realized that the venture business model is out of alignment with how we want to build the business, meaning like quality first, even if that means it has to grow more slowly. And so we decided early on strategically to run the business as a profitable business and to not fundraise again. So we didn't. So we did like a seed round to get the business up and running and to buy out the existing catering kitchen and to set up the infrastructure. But then we never fundraised after our seed round. And we've just been operating profitably since then. And this has been the best decision my co-founder has ever made. That's the reason why our product... Like I feel confident seeing this because I've tried all of our competitors. Like the food and the packaging is noticeably better. Yeah. Because as you know, you run a business. Like you have to prioritize something as a business. Is it growth or is it quality? Because you cannot do both in food. It's not software, right? You cannot do both in food. It does not scale like software. You need to make a choice. And so for us, we said it's going to be the quality of the experience. 
because that's what we care about most. That's what we're most passionate about. That's what excites us the most. And we feel like in the long run, if we're willing to be patient, the cream always rises to the top, right? The best product is going to win, assuming marketing isn't totally horrendous, right? The best product with reasonably good marketing is going to win in the end, even without venture. And that's the bet that we've been making. And, and it's been amazing because now eight years in, like there are celebrities who I would have thought in year one, we would have had to like beg to try our product who pay to use our product now. Nice. And the problem is problem, quote unquote, is I can't mention them because they're not, you know, they're not being paid. <laughs> you know, they're paying us, right? So it's private. It's like their confidentiality, but I love it. It's just the biggest compliment that when I look at our customer base, they're like literally NBA players, owners of NBA teams, like, you know, founders who you would have heard of. They can afford to use anything in the world and they use methodology. And to me, when I see that, that's how I know like we've made it as far as the quality that I've had in mind. That being said, Stefan and I, my co-founder, we have like much bigger ambitions for the quality than where we are today. Like we have barely scratched the surface because for us, in my mind, I want methodology to be the first cloud kitchen to get a Michelin star. Oh, interesting. That's what we're working towards. So like the focus in the next year has been hiring chefs out of fine dining kitchen, setting up partnerships with more local farms to get more of the rare sustainable ingredients um, that are needed, right? Leveling up the storytelling, leveling up the menu design, all of that, and the finesse of all the meals. And whether or not Michelin ever becomes cool enough to give a star to a cloud kitchen, I don't really care whether that actually happens, but we'll know when we reach that level of quality and that level of craft. And, And that's what we care about the most as a team. So even if Michelin doesn't ever come around to being open to doing something like that, which I think hopefully they will, because at one point they would have never given it to a street food stand and now they do, right? We want to be one of the first. So that's what I mean when I say our business is laser focused on quality at the highest levels in the world. So our goal is to create an at-home eating experience that is the most luxurious, but also the most healthy of anything else in the world. And that's what we're laser focused on. And it's really fun because of the fact that we're really clear. It's very clear who we should hire or not hire. It's very clear when we should let people go. It's very clear what kind of investments in product or marketing we should be making or not. And it's also just really fun because people who get excited about creating the best in class of like a product end up you know, those are the people we hire on the team and we're all perfectionists who are very emotional when the littlest thing goes wrong. And it's just great because we're all aligned. Like we care about the fact that that box was missing, you know, one thing in it. Like we really care and we're going to investigate and figure out why that happened. We're going to change the way, you know, the assembly line works so that it doesn't happen again or just every little thing like that. The team just jumps on it and it gets very upset when something goes wrong. And, And that's that kind of like fine dining quality passion that I just... Love And this is why chefs love working in fine dining kitchens, even though they're paid literally nothing. It's just that camaraderie, that teamwork, that shared vision and goal for pushing to the highest levels of craft is just, I mean, that's when I'm in my flow state. That's when my team is in its flow state. I just love it. And, and, and this level of working, I believe, would not have been possible if we had done the venture model. And why is that? Just because of the way investors want you to scale quickly? Exactly. Exactly. Because the things we do, the quality we do, do not scale quickly. Yeah. So we have like a lot of foods that are just being made by hand and made by hand, made from scratch, rare produce being grown in greenhouses that are hand harvested. It's just, it just does not scale like software. Interesting. Well, I find it so... I mean, I love to hear that that's your goal is to be the first cloud kitchen to get a Michelin star. I love that. I can't wait to see that happen because I know it will. Oh, thank you. 
I mean, you're the first person who graduated high school and to attend Stanford, right? You're like a trailblazer. You've already you've already done a lot. And I feel like this is just another one of those things you're going to accomplish. Thank you. That means a lot. I (laughs) I hope it happens. I will be very excited when that day happens. Well, you know, how can it not happen when you're playing the A game? Right. I think that's really what it's about. Like when you are an A player yourself and then you surround yourself with other A players and that's your game. Really, there's nothing that can stop you. <laughs> like, and I interview founders all day long, almost like I hear a lot of different stories. And you can tell the difference between the ones that have an A game and the ones that don't. So I think you're well on your way. And so while we're thinking of your business and A game, obviously, with any player, there's a lot of ups and downs and building a business. And so I'm curious, what has been one of the biggest challenges that you faced in building your company? There have been so many. I, I think one of the biggest ones was what I mentioned earlier, so I won't dig into it, but just really deciding, do we want to be that venture business or do we want to grow the old-fashioned way, run a business profitably and invest in our own growth? And that was actually really hard because I was running the business based out of Silicon Valley. My entire peer group of founders were all raising venture. Everyone else in food delivery is all raising venture. Everyone's playing a completely different game. and. I had to put my ego aside, you know, because it's like, just for those who don't work in Silicon Valley and don't understand, like in Silicon Valley, when people ask you how much money have you raised, that's like a status game that's being played, right? And so I had to just step out of that status game and say, none, I've never done a series A and let them judge me however they want. That was just a hard decision to make because just going like against what everyone else around me is doing. So that was really hard to do, but like I don't regret it. And then running this business during the pandemic was, yeah, talk about another time period where I was working like 16 hour days. I remember waking up at 4 a.m. because it was just constant firefighting every day, not knowing what to do next, not knowing whether the business would survive. Like, is there enough cash in the bank? to weather all of this with all the expenses that came up because what happened in food delivery, people don't understand. Everyone thinks like, oh, you're so lucky you're in food delivery. The pandemic came and then you were just raking in cash is what they think. So yeah, demand was really high for us. Demand skyrocketed as soon as the pandemic happened because everyone all of a sudden in California had to start staying home. And so current methodology members upped their orders. People had an order in time, all decided to order. So all of a sudden demand skyrocketed. At the same time, because the pandemic was happening and there's a lot of uncertainty, no employees wanted to come into work because they didn't feel safe doing so because they were scared of getting sick, right? So about maybe only 20% of our workforce was even willing to show up. So now we have demand that's like multiples of what it used to be, a workforce that's a fraction of its size. So then, okay, how do you get the product out? Then we had to lean on temp agencies. What a disaster it is. So all of a sudden, over 50% of your workforce is temps who many of them don't even have food industry experience. And then so how do you manage and train this team to get out like a high quality product at higher volumes than you've ever had before? Plus temps cost minimum 30% more in wages than what you pay for a regular employee. So they don't know what they're doing. So they're way slower. They make way more mistakes. And then you're paying a lot more when it was like unclear. Okay, if someone tests positive in the beginning, there is a recommendation out of Contra Costa County that you should close your business overnight, wipe down everything, blah, 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 test everyone. And, you know, and then you can resume operations again. So every week that we're closed, like we burn hundreds of thousands of dollars, like, cause at the scale we were at, we can't just close for a week. Cause we have like full teams that still need to get paid. And so yeah, demand was really high, but 
our economics were totally screwed because of business closures, temps, skyrocketing food prices, skyrocketing delivery fees from all our couriers. And there were multiple times during the pandemic when we almost actually like thinking to myself, I actually had to make, I had to actually make a plan like, okay, if we need to shut down the business, you know, what are all the steps that we need to take for letting people go? Where will I actually live? Like when I move in with my mom or my dad, I literally have like a full plan I had to write out for myself on what will we do if we shut the business down? Because if I didn't have that plan in place, like my anxiety was spinning out of it. If we go bankrupt, the world won't end. My life will suck. And it will suck to not be running this company more. And it will suck to have to move back in with my parents until I figure out my next move. And it will suck to have to like tell everyone they don't have jobs anymore. But like the plan is in place and I know how to do it. I mean, I stared death in the face many times during the pandemic. But also, of course, in the early days of the business, it was the same. But it was just scarier during the pandemic because on top of like the business being hard, like overall life was hard, you know, not being able to see your friends and family and all of that. Absolutely. I love how you said stared death in the face. I mean, that's literally what it's like in founder seats and CEO seats when you are going through such a downturn type of time and having to really face those challenges head on. That's the make or break situation, I think, for leaders. Can you handle it or not? It's never going to be comfortable for anyone. We're all human. No one wants to have to fire anybody, especially during such a tough time. So tell us like how you kind of got through that. And obviously you powered through. Is there any advice you have for entrepreneurs out there? Maybe they're making their first layoff or they're either firing their employee for the first time. It's tough. What advice do you have? The most important thing is to actually like be prepared and like have a detailed plan in place. Like when the bank account hits this much, I know that if I let go of people, I will be able to give them this much severance. You know, there's because there's this much in the bank account, and these are the steps that I will take. Like what I just mentioned, have that plan in place because a lot of the anxiety that we have when we don't have that plan in place is over the uncertainty of what will happen if we do go bankrupt. So, like, have that plan in place because it will at least minimize some of the anxiety during that time. And then the second thing I would say is one of the things that my co founder and I did is we huddled and we said, listen, we can go into this playing defense. We can go into this playing offense. Like, let's go into this opportunistically and figure out how do we come out of the pandemic stronger than ever by looking around to see like, okay, there's a lot of stuff that's sucky and annoying, but where are there opportunities to build a stronger team and business? Let's find what those are and let's do them now so that we come out of this stronger. So as an example, one of the things we did during the pandemic because our economics were so screwed and we were on the verge of bankrupt is we outsourced more of our teams. So there were some teams that were still operating in the US, such as like engineering, you know, marketing design, we had to like let go of all those teams and move them offshore so that they would be literally 20% of what they cost us currently, but it helped keep the business alive. And in the end, the teams that we ended up with were just as strong or stronger than the ones we had in the US and a fraction of the price. And we would have never had the guts to make that transition if we weren't forced to, frankly, and if we weren't being opportunistic. You know, it was a hard decision to make. These are people who I had worked with since the start of the business, who had been with me for six years. And some of them had been my friends before that because they had joined from the previous tech company I worked at. They'd been my friend for 10 years, right? So it was like one of the hardest things I had to do. But what I was committed to was not any individual relationship. My commitment was for the business to come out of the pandemic stronger than it was before. And so we agreed, my co-founder and I, like, that's the goal. We were aligned on it. And we had to do what it took to do that, no matter how hard those decisions were on like an individual employee or personal relationship basis. Yeah. 
And I like what you said about, I think it's so important to plan for different scenarios. And I think you said something like, if and when we hit X in revenue, I know that I have to do X, Y, Z. I've got to let go X number of people or whatever it is. You know, what I'm saying is I agree with you. And a way to reduce that anxiety is to be prepared. And when you're letting someone go, you know, you're letting them go with feelings of that you care about them, you know, that you're not just going to cut them off. Today's your last day. See ya. Good luck. It's, I know this is hard for you. It's hard for us. Here's what we're going to offer you moving forward. Here's your severance or your parachute. And I think that those things go a really long way because there's so many founders that mess that up really badly. Oh, yeah. No, we have too. We've learned that the hard way by being unprepared. So I've learned this the hard way. It wasn't like, oh, I knew this from the founding of the business. I learned this lesson the hard way by just not being prepared enough during times when I had to do layoffs. And what happened though? How did you learn it the hard way? Exactly what you meant. Like when you let people go improperly, they resent you and they will do things to seek revenge. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yep. So they seek revenge on you. It sounds like a legal situation, HR situation here. (laughs) It wasn't pleasant. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't be running a business for eight years if you didn't deal with that. So (laughs) yeah, that was another thing. That was another thing that I learned the hard way because, you know, I was always shielded for that working in finance and tech. I didn't know that, you know, I was never exposed to the legal issues. So they were always happening behind the scenes. And yeah, once you found a company, you realize that like a good chunk of your job is dealing with HR litigation issues. (laughs) HR litigation. Exactly. But even just from the emotional point, you know, legal stuff aside, that resentment is real with people. I've experienced that and I still am resentful with the people that did that to me because it's just not necessary. There's like a very mature, intelligent way of letting people go. And that's like the one thing you don't want to leave a you know, a sour thing in someone's mouth. It's just like not necessary in business. I feel like there's so many ways to solve for that. And preparing is definitely one of them. So kudos to you for having figured that out early. And then pandemic happened, you were able to prepare for that. So that sounds like a really tough challenge. How big is the business now? And where do you see it going? And how did you get to Paris? At what point? How long have you been there? The business is, we just launched nationwide in April, which is very exciting. And we're going to continue to, we launched a five-day reset that you experienced in the vegan and meat and seafood. We're going to launch more versions of the reset nationwide. For example, a version that will have breakfast and other things. So I'm excited about that. We're also working on like a family product that will launch next year that will feed a family of four very easily. So I'm very excited about all the innovation coming up. So in addition to improving the quality at that fine dining level, just offering resets and wellness experiences for a broader audience that just lean into our core competency today of just giving someone a zero effort, zero depredation, but like very healthy, delicious dining experience at home. So that I'm very much looking forward to because I love experiential product design. And I landed in Paris just because after we outsourced the team, most of the people, pretty much all, I don't have anyone who reports to me in America. Like they're all in India and the Philippines. So I have more overlap with them when I'm in Europe. And I've always dreamed of living abroad and being nomadic. So for the last two years, I was mostly nomadic where I was living in a different city every three to four weeks. But recently I settled in Paris because my priorities have changed. Like I got the nomadic 
stuff out of my belt. My priorities have changed. Like I am ready to like settle down now and be a wife. So I'm staying in Paris. So you're looking to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright in Paris because you want to stay there. Yes. I want to wow. marry yeah, someone who's European and settled down in Paris long term because I really love Europe and I love the lifestyle here. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. I feel like I know a few people that like my sister <laughs> who moved to Germany and was there for work and met someone and, you know, had to make a tough choice to stay or come back to the States. And I think it's been really challenging for her being away from home. And then we've got, you know, another friend that recently moved to the UK for a relationship she wanted to pursue. And so I always find it so fascinating because obviously being far from family, is your family still on the West Coast? Yeah, so I have a sister who's married with two kids who lives in Texas in the Austin area. And then my mom lives by her. And then my dad is still in Southern California in Little Saigon. He's remarried. So I don't see families often. That's one of the trade-offs. Yeah. But my dream is to settle down in Europe and marry a European. And that's the priority. (laughs) And that's what's going to happen. So you're there fishing in the pond of (laughs) Europeans. I love it. Exactly. It's very fun. (laughs) All right. You know what you want. I love that. You're just like on it. You're like, I know what I want. I'm going, I'm going to do this. This is how I want my life to be. I think that's so inspiring for a lot of people tuning in. I think it's hard for a lot of people to make a leap like that, especially just to get up and leave and live in Europe and really commit that way away from family, all the things that they know. It's not easy. I don't know how much you know, how much you speak French. No, fortunately, I studied French for four years in high school, although I obviously hadn't practiced it since then. But that's helped me pick it up pretty quickly and have not as bad of an American accent as I probably would if I were learning it for the first time now. So I almost feel like it's destiny because no one studied French in high school, like in my generation. I did. Like everyone, oh, you were one of because everyone I knew yeah. studied Spanish, and I don't know why I chose French. And like now that I'm here, I'm like, oh, this is why I studied French. That's but like why. everyone studied Spanish except for me. That's so funny. Yeah. Spanish is a very popular language to learn in school. I studied French. I went to an elementary school that started teaching it, I think, at like fourth grade. So I studied four through high school and I studied abroad in Paris and lived in Paris numerous times. I love it. Oh, your French is going to be like so phenomenal compared it's to mine. It's completely <laughs> gone. But <laughs> what? Yeah, no, I haven't been to Paris in years. It's been a long time since I've been back in Paris. <sighs> But I know I'm aching to get back. It's beautiful. It's awesome. If you come back, you have to hit me up. I always say this to like any friends or network people like hit me up. I'll take you to (laughs) an amazing, beautiful restaurant with a beautiful view and make sure you have the best time ever. Sold. I'm there. I'm going to come visit. (laughs) As my sister's like, what the heck? You never come and visit me in Germany. Why would you just go to Paris? (laughs) But anyways, before we wrap up, you know, what kind of final advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are tuning in, thinking about maybe being an entrepreneur for the first time, or maybe they're in the trenches right now and they're having a tough time, you know, maybe they're having a down moment. What's some final advice you want to leave them? I think that the most important thing that my co-founder and I have learned, and, and it's the reason why I'm eight years in and not burned out at all, more passionate and energetic about the business than ever, is because of the decision we made around year two and a half or three, where up till then we had been slaves or mules to the business where everything that the business needed, we put the business first. For example, like we used to just not take salary whenever the business wasn't doing well. But then the amount of financial stress that I would feel during that time, which would then like leak into all my decision making, you know, all of that. So 
one of the things that we pivoted and we changed is we would write down every year and we still share with each other, what are our overall life goals and dreams? Like what is everything that we want in life in the next year? And then how do we run the business in such a way that we get all of those things also so that like the business is a meal to us and not the other way around. Interesting. Yeah. Once we started running the business like that, everything transformed. The business was more successful. I was healthier and happier. I started living a balanced life. I was able to make decisions with more clarity and less fear, more abundance and less lack and all of these things. And that totally changed the game for me to where like when the business suffers now, I never take a pay cut. I just don't anymore because I think more clearly when I know I'm not about to be homeless. Right. So right. Like, I'm not saying that's going to be right yeah. for everyone, but I've just learned what I need to do to be in the right headspace to make the right strategic decisions for the business. So my advice is you don't have to be a slave to the business. I just feel like there's so much there are all these founders out there and all this press. They like they make it sound like it's like a badge of honor if you're working yourself to death and taking no salary and just doing whatever it takes, sacrificing your health and your personal relationship and all of this. So your business can see. No, there's another way to run a business, which I've figured out, which is like put yourself first. You know, in the same way, like you know, the airplane put on the action right. It's the same with business. If you put your, you can put yourself first, and you will be able to run your business from a more clear-headed space. Because in the end, we need to be working on the right things and. It's hard to know what those things are if you're sleep deprived, stressed out, lonely, et cetera. Right. And when you say airplane, I know what you mean. You're talking about that oxygen mask. You got to put on yours first before you can put on others for them. And I agree with that. That's a really good perspective, healthy perspective to have. And I love that you encourage your team. It sounds like you have meetings where you bring your team together and you all talk about your personal lives or goals and dreams. And that's really rare. You know, a lot of companies, they might say, so how's your day? How's life going? But they don't talk about your dreams and goals of what you want to accomplish or do in your life. And that that's a really interesting thing that you bring as your leadership style with your business. And it sounds like it's working really well for you. It is. And I love doing it. So when an employee says, I'm training for a marathon in the next year, and so I need XYZ time off, or I'm going to be gone for two weeks on a dream trip to Europe. Like When they tell me these things, it's like, great, now we can all the team prepare and plan together for you to be out for two weeks. So it just only helps in the end, you know, the business is a mule to the people and not the other way around. Right. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Julie. I loved hearing your story. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.